0: Ruth Dennison, whose biography that 's just come out this week, dancing in the Dharma, the life and teachings of Ruth denison, um, who's driving up is driving up from her center in the Joshua tree desert she 's eighty three years old, but she insists on driving through the night and it is just oh, get in my car, where do you want me to go and just drive um, and Ruth is um, How to say it? Ruth is a force, basically. (laughs) You know, there are some people who have a tremendous presence and vitality and life energy no matter what. Um, And Ruth is one of those people. And the story, her biography, um, tells of her early life in Germany and going through the Second World War and then some terrible stories of her life after the war in uh, Camps that she was in and um, raped and traumatized and escaping somehow and eventually making her way to the U.S. as a nanny in Los Angeles and then falling in somehow to a crowd of people. She'd always had a spiritual interest that were connected with Alan Watts um, and the Vedanta Vedanta Center of Los Angeles and getting very much involved with the in the 19 19- I guess, late 1950s and early 1960s, with a kind of burgeoning spiritual movement and some elements of Buddhist practice. Um, and uh, as she got more involved, she became more interested in the teachings and studied with um, Charlotte Selver, who was the founder of sensory awareness, um, and really learned how to live in senses and body, spent time with Alan Watts. Her husband Henry, who was a psychologist in uh, in Hollywood, um, was also quite connected. <coughs> beside the Vedanta Society, became quite connected with Tim Leary and Richard Alpert, Ramdas, and so they all went out to uh, to Millbrook, which was the estate in upstate New York where Tim Leary and and Richard Alpert were. Um, conducting their LSD experiments after being thrown out of Harvard. And Henry didn't want Ruth to come, so I think about Ruth's grand entrances. Ruth decided to go anyway. She probably drove across country knowing her. But anyway, they were having some great, you know, evening feast where everyone was intoxicated on LSD and they had. Um, you know, magicians who were visiting and people doing fire dances and things like that. And all of a sudden, Dolling, this this strange woman that Henry had never seen but was flirting with him a great deal, appeared, which was Ruth, of course, in costume, where even her own husband didn't quite know who she was, and she made this grand entrance in the middle of the party. So maybe she will. We'll see if that will bring her. They went and traveled all around the world to Japan and India and various places looking for spiritual teachings. And they spent some time in Burma at the end of the 50s and early 60s before Burma's dictatorship closed. And her husband Henry was kind of a scholar and going around and asking different monks about nirvana, enlightenment and so forth. And Ruth said, well, I should do this. And so she just sat and got enlightened while her husband was taking notes about it, you know, how it is in families. Everyone has a certain role to take Um, under her teacher Uba Kin who, like Charlotte Selver, taught most fundamentally of all that it is important to be awakened within this fathom-long body, as the Buddha says, to not desert this human body, but rather through uh, a wise and compassionate understanding of this very body comes the possibility of freedom, no matter where we are. And she began to... Teach, travel and teach, and she's been teaching for 30-some years now. She's a um, wonderful friend in that regard, um, colleague, uh, and um, founded her center out in the desert in in Joshua Tree. And maybe just one more story to tell about Ruth. Um, In her teaching, what she most wants to communicate to people is that liberation and freedom is exactly here where you are. It's not some other place and you don't have to be another person. Do you get that line? (laughs) And you don't have to be in some other circumstance or make things different. But if we can awake to the circumstances and conditions that arise where we are and see them with clarity and a great heart of compassion, In this place where we are, freedom is possible. So a story about Ruth that uh, happened a few years ago. Her husband, Henry, who died a couple of years ago from Alzheimer's um, in his, I guess he was in his mid-80s or late 80s. Ruth was taking care of him for the last 10 years as he got less and less able to remember things and take care of himself. And so she would live with him in their home in Hollywood and then commute out to Joshua Tree in the desert to run her retreats. And sometimes do that um, every day, commute from taking care of Henry and then go out and teach the retreat and then drive back. And Henry, who got um, progressively more uh, forgetful um, at one point, as happens with people in Alzheimer's, um, left the stove on and accidentally burned down the kitchen and part of the house. So Ruth is taking care of the fire and taking care of Henry and trying to arrange this and going back to her center and teaching people to be in their bodies, darling, and to you know move with graciousness and be present wherever you are, and so forth. And then going back and taking care of Henry and so forth. And she was invited; she'd been invited to go and offer teachings in Oregon, in Portland by a, a student of hers who has a center up there. And so the day came for her to fly up. She'd been madly taking care of all these things and she arrived in Portland to come to a room full of people, um, a couple of hundred or a few hundred people that had been gathered to hear this teacher. And uh, she was exhausted. Um, beyond, way beyond exhausted doing all of this. And so she sat there and she had them feel the sensations in their body and begin to listen to her as a meditation. And then she started telling stories as she does. And she started to tell the story about Henry and taking care of her husband with Alzheimer's and running their treats and about the fire and how part of the house had burned down. And she went on for a little bit, and then she said, oh, and I need to tell you what's just happened to me. Um, My husband, Henry, lit a fire, and part of the house burned down, and I've been taking care of him. And she started telling the story all over again as if she hadn't said it. And people kind of sat back in their chairs and looked a little bit. And she went on and said, You know, it's been such a difficult time and spinning her stories for a little while. And then 10 minutes later, she started to tell, Oh, did I tell you what happened with my husband Henry? He has some Alzheimer's and this is happening and there was a fire in the house. And she started to tell the story for the third time. Well, people were getting a little bit upset, as can happen, you know that she's losing it, right? And a couple of people got up and just decided this this to walk out. So they were stood up and they were walking toward the door and she said wait, wait a second. And you know, as she might she said, "Don't you leave yet." So they all turn around, everybody's watching. She said, "You have the opportunity to see something really remarkable tonight." And everybody's waiting. You you have the opportunity to see a senior Dharma teacher fail. Because I have no idea what I'm saying. I can't even remember what I said two sentences ago. I know I'm not making much sense because I'm so exhausted. And here I am, and this is the way things are. And let us just be with the way things are. And those people sat back down. If you can imagine the ability, we just did this meditation of bowing to what arises, imagine bowing to that. And she went on and did some more teachings, maybe told the story of Henry again, who knows. <laughs> but she's fine, actually. It turned out that it was just situational. If you have gone for weeks without sleeping and tending to all these things and so forth, you know, you, you, you lose it, basically. At least I would. Um, and then um, and she got rested and, and so forth. But I tell the story, it's one that I've told at other times about her, because it um, offers in some way uh, a a quintessential, and to my my mind and heart, um, very profound and simple teaching of the capacity to be present where we are and say, yes, this is the way things are, this is it, and it's possible to be with this too. So who knows, Ruth may appear and she may not. I'd like to talk a little bit about the retreat that just finished here uh, this weekend. Um, And maybe they'll even tie together a bit, and then I'll take some time for questions. So uh, every spring for the last seven years since we completed the residential retreat center part of Spirit Rock, we've offered a two-month silent meditation retreat. and many of you perhaps have done week or 10-day retreats. How many of you have have not done at least a week silent retreat, just to know? Maybe, ah, fantastic. We have something interesting ahead for you. And people hear about silence for a week. And you know, could I do that? Turns out the silence is the best part. After a couple of days, um, it is so delicious to just not have to put on your makeup and your expressions and, you know, your performance and whatever it is that you do for other people, and just really listen to your own body and heart and mind. It's it's really wonderful. And the hard part about silence is the ending of it for most people um, because it's so delicious. So we had this two-month retreat practice period for people. Um, And the prerequisite is that you've done one week of meditation training or 10-day retreat first. Um, And those alone, the week or 10 days are really, really wonderful. And it was full, so there was about 85 people plus staff, maybe 100 people who were all together for this month or two-month period. Some people came all two months, some for a month. And as you start to sit and meditate in this way, where you have the kind of time of sitting and walking and feeling your breath and body and in a mindful way noticing the emotions and thoughts and finding the space of awareness and equanimity and compassion to allow for them all and to deepen a sense of freedom, what starts to happen are two different dimensions of our life. What I would call the historical dimension and the universal dimension, or maybe the personal and the universal dimension. And the personal or historical dimension is that as you sit and meditate, all the unfinished business of your heart starts to come. There you are sitting, feeling your breath a little bit, doing walking meditation, the deer on the hillside, it all seems so nice, and then you get flooded with the memories of something that happened to you that's unfinished, some argument some trauma from your past and people were there, you know, veterans from various wars who were sitting there and reliving the trauma of being in a battle and killing or nearly dying or having people around them die. People who'd gone in various other ways in their life through great forms of trauma or even mild forms. of All that stuff comes back and you're sitting there And part of the practice is to allow what's held in the body, because the body holds much of that stuff, and what's held in the heart and the psyche, to reveal itself, to unlayer, to be released, and to sit with enough compassion and loving kindness and presence, the presence of the Buddha in yourself, that all that can come and go and you make your peace in the middle of it. It's not that you get rid of it, but that you make your peace with it. Does that, Do you understand the difference? Um, and in one, one of the evening Dharma talks, every night there's a Dharma talk, and during the day, every day or two when you go on retreat, you have an interview for 15 minutes or so with a teacher just to find out what's happening in your meditation and get support for it. Um, one evening, one of the teachers there pointed out how um, this setup of the meditation hall itself was a reflection of the two dimensions of practice, the personal and the universal, or the historical and the universal. Because not only is there the personal stuff that comes up, but in the universal dimension... You start to see how it all comes and goes, that it's waves, it rises and passes, it's uncertain, trauma or pain may come and then it disappears, delight and joy may come and then it disappears. Pretty soon you more and more feel that your life is a river, which it is, because you're not so busy trying to get things done and you get the actual experience of body and mind unfiltered, um, undistracted by your life. And so the kind of universal realizations of what it means to be spacious and compassionate and not to hold on to things that cause suffering, but to find a kind of inner graciousness, the wakefulness of the Buddha within, grows in each person. And in the way the meditation hall is set up, the altar in the one part of the room, in the front of the room where the teachers sit behind them is an altar like this one with an image of Buddha and an image, a male image of Buddha and then a female image of Prajnaparamita like this feminine image of Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion and mercy. Um, So there's this kind of universal archetype at one side of the room of the Buddha sitting quite peacefully with one hand touching the earth. Um, calling on the earth to bear witness to the fact that he and all beings have the right to awaken in this human form, in this earth. And next to him is Prajnaparamita, who is the feminine embodiment of wisdom. She's also considered to be the mother of all Buddhas. in a teaching gesture. On the opposite side of the room, in the back of the room, is a beautiful altar that is our community altar. And on it, people put pictures of those they love, their children, their parents, people in trouble, prayers for folks who are dealing with cancer, um, images of things that were important to them found, objects that they had, um, poems, concerns for the people of Afghanistan or Iraq or you name the place, the the people who live in the cells in San Quentin that, A couple of people there have been doing a lot of um, work in in San Quentin, in the prison, and so they were brought in the altar. And you looked at it, and by the end of two months, with candles and flowers and prayers and poems and pictures, it was just overflowing with people's compassion and care and prayers and concerns. As I said one night, it kind of looked like Lourdes. You'd go by there and there'd be all this stuff on it. You know, all that was missing were the crutches. Um... (laughs) and then one one morning somebody snuck in early and put a crutch on the wall right by, so sort of to everyone's amusement. But part of the reason that I describe the altars and tell this story is that our meditation practice, even as you have just sat here for this 35-minute sitting, has both these dimensions of our life. It has the historical or personal dimension, and you sit, you know, and the problem at work or the difficulty with a child or partner or money or whatever, it comes in, doesn't it? Um, And there's the possibility of allowing what's held in the body and heart and mind to be met with some spaciousness and compassion so that there's a release and easing, a, a finding of peace underneath it all. And at the same time, there's also something timeless about sitting. When we sit, we become the Buddha under our tree of enlightenment. And stories come and go, and images and difficulties and joys, beautiful things will come and go. And those become part of our experience. But there also comes an opening to a vastness, a silence, that surrounds all of those, that is who we really are. As it says in the Buddhist texts, O oh, nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, do not forget who you really are. And who we really are is not the small sense of self, all the petty problems. That's, you know, that's a part of our dance. But, you know, if you could go back 10 or 20 or however many, however old you are, 30 years, and do a sitting then, you would have a whole different set of problems then. And they're all gone, pretty much. And now there's a new set for you. They really are impermanent, and there is, in the vast stillness around the personal, there is an invitation to rest in that which is timeless and undying and luminous. And as one begins to trust the quality of awareness itself, the space of awareness holds all things without being lost in them, like the sky can allow the changes of weather and the clouds to come and go, and yet the sky remains open. And there's a trusting of this, a deep trust of awareness itself. So one person who was on the retreat, I have a couple of notes that were in my pocket, and I thought, okay, well, this will be fun. I'll read them. People, you know, after they've been sitting for a while, they get really bored, and then they write stuff. Um, But it tends to be sometimes an expression of where they are. So this is a poem that one young man who sat for two months wrote. And it gives a sense of this play of these dimensions. And he, like many people, at the end of the retreat, came to a very deep place of stillness and open-heartedness. Vast silence, the world moves but the mind of truth-seeing is still. Thoughts play out the self-story over and over, comparing, grasping, finding fault, but the mind of truth-seeing is still. This trembling mind will never find rest in the world of ease and difficulty. These are the children of doing. There is rest only in not doing. Beneath every whiplash turn of birth and death, moment by moment, is the silent one who goes nowhere, and thus is always available. Only drop all ideas, drop all hopes and dreams, drop regret and fixing and salvation. There is no one to be fixed or saved. I say it from my deepest knowing. Yet the one who moves the pen is drenched in sadness. Why? Who is there to be drenched? Here's the great mystery. There is no one that suffers. Yet to be human is to know sorrow as your own skin. The mind of wanting howls, and the mind of truth seeing is still. Even to say, be still you wild grasping one, is just the holster talking to the gun. Do nothing. Don't even do, do nothing. (laughs) Let go of both action and inaction. There is no way to speak it. This is the way it is. Vast silence, the world in constant motion, and the truth, mind of truth-seeing is still. So that's one person's expression of these two dimensions of the universal and the personal. And my teacher, Ajahn Chah, in the forest monastery used to, teach in a way, and he actually um, would give kind of spontaneous koans to people that you couldn't quite figure out the answer to. Um, He asked at one point, where is the place where there's no going forward and no moving backward? And no standing still. Answer that for me, and you'll know where I live or don't live. So, we were all working on that koan in the forest, and it was repeated in this two month retreat at one Dharma talk one night. And then I got this note from someone. In answer to the question that Ajahn Chah posed about what's going what is, what is happening if you're not moving forward and not moving backward and not standing still, I pose the following questions. You can choose one of four. Are you jumping up and down, (laughs) hopping on one foot, lying down, or none of the above? (laughs) And part of what happens in the course of the retreat is that your mind and body start to release all this stuff and then it releases its problems and it releases all its fantasies and you become queen for the day and king of the world, you know, and sex goddess, you know, and then you become, you know, Donald Trump and then you go, oh my God, I didn't want to be Donald Trump, I actually want to be. And you just see the imagination do everything, right? Um, Okay, now I'll be Muhammad Ali, that's better, right? or Whatever. And you go through all of that And there comes a sense of humor about it all and about yourself. I mean, it's just so absurd and wonderful and playful and painful. And you begin to realize that if you take any of it too seriously, you lose the great heart of compassion. You lose the connection with what is vast. And to not take it seriously doesn't mean that there aren't million things in this world that need to be tended and cared for, from one's own body and being and heart, to the people closest around us, to the two million people, two and a half million people in prisons in this country in this insane way, or to the people wherever it happens to be that are suffering from hunger or injustice. It doesn't mean that one doesn't tend to that but rather that it's tended to from the place of connection and compassion of the heart, not, oh, those poor people over there, but it's us. And after a while you weep or you laugh or whatever, and then it starts to dawn on you that you're laughing with all the people that ever laughed. Or your trauma comes up and you realize this terrible thing happened to you, and as you breathe and sit with it, from the historical personal dimension for a while, and you feel your pain, all of a sudden, you're not the only child that was abandoned and abused and put in a foster home, but you're one of 10 million, 50 million, 100 million children right now on the earth who've been abandoned or left or put in a foster home, and it's not your pain but it's the pain of the world that you carry with some compassion and dignity and the graciousness of the heart of a Buddha. And you realize that it's yours, and yet it's not yours, if that makes sense. Like that first piece that I read. And in this, in this wedding of the universal and the personal, in these dimensions coming together, there grows a deeper and deeper capacity then to offer yourself to the world, not because you need to, not from sort of the needy ego place, which is okay. We all have that, myself included, you know. There's the nights that I come in and look and see, gee, I wonder how many people have come, you know, counting the house, right? Oh, not so many people, they don't love me anymore, I've done that, you know. Or I get nervous and I think, okay, you know is this going to go well, will it sound good, will they like me, right? The whole kind of inner insecurity thing. And then the practice that I do with it, actually, if I notice myself getting nervous, is to just pause for a moment when I notice it and remember that I'm here to teach the Dharma or the teachings of awakening, and I'm not here to teach Jack, you know, Jack, you could do without, and if that's not clear to you, you can talk to my daughter. <laughs> she will straighten you out. As a recent teenager, she can articulate very well the problems of the adult world. Um, so if you take it personally, you know, you get caught in it, and if I do, it's the same thing. But if we rest. In the great heart of compassion, we see, oh, this is just personal life, and it's the way it is with its joys and sorrows. Everybody, each of us, has a certain measure of sorrows we've been given, this measure of sorrows, and a tremendous measure of beauty. And to make the sorrows our only devotion would be great suffering. But to make beauty our devotion without seeing the sorrows would also Cause tremendous pain. And when the heart awakens, it's like opening the door. You get the whole thing. You get the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. So another little note that someone left on the bulletin board for me. Dear Jack, I walked into the Dharma Hall for the evening sitting with a strange feeling. Maybe I was feeling a bit unhappy, aversive to what was happening, I thought. And then I sat down, and with my eyes open, I've been doing a big, spacious mind form of meditation, I tuned in, and I said, okay, let me listen to what's really here now. The answer came simply and immediately. Contentment, an unusual state for me. I'm always doing, but here I was, absolutely content to be sitting in this place with these people after weeks and weeks on this rainy night and I didn't want one more thing. I didn't need another great state of meditation, some high state of samadhi. I didn't need another insight or another experience of any kind. I didn't even need another meditation. So I released big mind practice, the focus of the eyes, and just sat there, looking at the candles far up in the front in the altar. And the only thing I had to do was to let my mind rest and settle and be with the simple, amazing experience of contentment in the heart. The candles glowed and flickered. How sweet it is to be spending this evening in front of the fireplace on this very wet night, with my family because you do get a kind of family on retreat you don't know anybody's names but you know their socks and the way they (laughs) sniffle and the way they move and their t-shirts and stuff there's this amazing intimacy in silence that's very beautiful that grows so here I was spending this evening in front of the fireplace on this very wet night with my family how intimate cozy, peaceful, and mundane, just sitting, looking at candlelight and the backs of 80 some people's heads, most of whom I've never spoken to and don't even know their names. And so, without deciding to, I just began blessing the back of each nameless head, (laughs) one by one, head after head. The blessings seemed to flow through me. May you be blessed. May you be blessed. May you too be blessed. There were some heads I couldn't see, but I figured I'd just shoot some extra blessings over the people between me and the hidden ones, and wherever the blessing landed, maybe in an ear or on an arm or somewhere's lap, it would be okay. It would still work. And there were a month before Passover. The word that came to mind was the Hebrew word dayenu, which means it was enough. It would be enough. If there had only been this miracle, this moment, it would have been enough. Thank you. So I offer you those little reflections coming down the mountain, if you will, the hill a little bit from the retreat center, Um, because it was a beautiful retreat, and I certainly want to invite you, those of you who've never done a silent retreat, to consider that at some point. It really is a nourishment for the heart. And now I'm quite happy to take any kinds of questions or reflections if as you listen there's something that seems important that you know. You know what do you know about the universal and the personal and how our life is this woven strand between the two what do you know about vast space and the heart of compassion so anyone who would like to speak or ask please I don't know that I have a statement I'm interested in your thoughts on um, someone in the same vein for uh, Harry Joggle as his captain and how how much made of not allowing her to the mm. Ah, so thoughts and reflections about Terry Shayfo <sighs> um it's unfortunate when religion gets mixed with politics yeah. because most of what's happening around her is really political, which is to say, um there's a lot of struggle, grandstanding and struggling for power and to influence and so forth, um, when underneath it, what's really going on is the most intimate and profound of human experiences dying. Um, one of the beautiful things about the Buddhist teachings in regard to birth and death is the teaching of the sacredness of life and the teachings of the middle path and how they come together. Let me see how I can best say this. When you enter the forest monastery where I trained, um, you enter a temple like Spirit Rock where the paths in the jungle are swept by these long bamboo brooms every day and People live in these little huts and clearings in the jungle. And part of the culture in the temple is that every being's life is respected. So the monks go out of their way not to step on a single ant, you know, and and the, all the creatures, the, the snakes and the deer and, you know, the wild hens that live in the forest and so forth. There's all this kind of docile quality because they know that they live in a place where people respect their lives. So there's this beautiful respect for life. There's also a respect for individual karma, so that when the Buddha would teach people, these amazing dialogues which are recorded in the Buddhist texts, they're mostly just records of the Buddha's dialogues with people who came to ask him questions. He ended those dialogues most often with a phrase that said, now it is time for you to go and do as you see fit. He didn't say, this is what you should have to do, you should pull the feeding tube, you should not pull the feeding tube. Now it is time for you to go and do as you see fit. The deepest teaching in the Buddhist tradition about how we respond to birth and death is the teaching of the heart's intention. Many people have living wills and write and say, if I become um, comatose, please don't put me on life support. I don't want to lie there in a vegetative state. Wouldn't you want to respect that? Um, now it is time for you to do as you see fit. Now, suppose you don't have instructions, as in Terry's case, then what becomes necessary? Is to try to listen to what the heart's best intention is for a person, and sometimes you can't know. I mean, and so I can understand the conflict between her husband and her parents. They have their hearts tell them different things, and they have to have some simple way to sort it out. Unfortunately, became this national circus instead. Um, But end of life or beginning of life, actually, the middle path says this, and I'll go into some tricky waters here, so hang in with me if you can. Um, Because there's some way in which this case is also connected to the national conflict around abortion. And the problem with both of them is that they get polarized Um, into two extremes, and the middle path. I'll do the abortion part, and then maybe it'll work for the end of life, too. In the Buddhist teachings, um, uh, life is sacred, and so even a fetus, even a a, a small fetus, once there is um, a child in the womb, um, is considered life. Um, and killing is considered something that is to be avoided. So from Buddhist teachings, um, there are consequences to abortion. Um, and anybody who doesn't know that um, isn't paying attention. Yvonne Rand, who is a good friend and was here teaching just a week or two ago and has a, had a temple for many years in Green gold Zen Center, um, does a beautiful practice she learned from Japan um, for water babies. She does it four times a year, um, a Jizo or bodhisattva compassion practice for parents of children who have died in stillbirth or who've miscarried or who've had abortions. And part of the ceremony is to sew a little robe, a tiny little robe for the child that was aborted, or miscarried, or died in stillbirth, give that child a name, and place the robe on one of these little Buddhas in the garden. And there's a whole beautiful ceremony with it. And the people who go, whether women or men, often discover, as I would in my own life, um, because at one point, when I was much younger, the woman that I was with, and I ended up having an abortion, and it was a real struggle about whether we should do it. And she, her birth control was using a coil that she had, and this, she got pregnant with the coil in there, which wasn't so safe. And there was a, It wasn't a good time to have this child, there were a lot of reasons. Um, but most of the people who go to Yvonne's ceremony discover that it has deep meaning and that often there's a lot of grief because an abortion isn't just a kind of medical procedure. That's one side. Say, oh, it's nothing, Is wrong. On the other side, Buddhist teachings wouldn't say that it shouldn't happen and that it shouldn't be a choice that's made. There are many circumstances in which a person, a woman, who is pregnant, might, with the deepest and most compassion and intention, say, it is not right to bring this child into the world at this time, for a variety of different reasons, Um, and to have an abortion. But it's not a scientific procedure, you know, just a medical procedure. It has real meaning. And for someone to understand it deeply, both of these truths have to be held that life is precious, and that it's not a small thing on one hand, and that women absolutely must have responsibility for their own bodies, and that it would be insane for the government, or laws, or men, which is mostly what it is, to be telling women what is right um, for their own bodies. And I feel passionate about that. But we, in our culture, we've divided these two. And we do the same around death. At one extreme is the kind of medical, let's keep people alive no matter what, which happens in hospitals in all kinds of ways. That's at one extreme. you know. And then the other extreme, which is also fearful for people, well, what if we make um, assisted suicide um, a common practice in our culture? Could it be misused? In what ways, without a reverence for life, how might that be misused? That's the other extreme, isn't it? So what does it mean when we're faced with this mystery of someone dying? And what does it mean to listen in your heart and do, act from the deepest and most caring intention you can? And nobody can tell another person how to do that. I and mean, I think half the people in this room will, at some point or other face that kind of dilemma. What do you do with a a sister or a parent or a spouse or someone who is in this kind of circumstance? And many of them will not have said exactly, written out what they want. So it's going to require all your compassion and all your meditative skills in some way and all your caring to make as wise a decision as you can and then to let it go. I don't know, I've been going on and on from that one question. I hope that it's helpful. Um, I want to take it away from the, all the grandstanding, which everybody knows. It's not so, I mean, it's so obvious. Um, it's hard to live in a culture that can be characterized so frequently by the absence of the sacred. Um, and to have a sense of the sacredness of life um, then allows us to operate in these difficult areas um, in a different way. The One other thing I'll add um, that's kind of interesting in Buddhist cultures and in those of us who's trained very deeply in meditation has to do with cosmology in, a, in an important way. And that is that if you think this is your only life and that's your belief, then there can be a a real fear and clinging that doesn't happen if you have a deep experience that, hey, this is your life and this isn't the only life that you have. I don't know how to explain it further except to say that I never believed in future lives and my teacher Ajahn Chah says, you know, you don't have to believe in any of that stuff. It's all here and now, birth and death, moment by moment, even though it's true. <laughs> <laughs> and my deepest meditations over a lot of years and experiences have shown really amazing experiences of other lives and so forth. so I've come to really see and know and believe that cosmology, and not only that, you know the the mystics and the people that I most deeply respect, whether they are from Africa, um, Maladoma Sommet, the medicine man that I work with, or from Latin America, you know, from the indigenous um, shamanic traditions, or from India or China and so forth. The mystics that I've met, they all know that who we are is not just this physical body. That spirit is so central. And that spirit comes into a body, and if you've been in the mystery of see this being present with someone when they die. It goes from being this person to being just a lump of meat basically lying. It's the most amazing thing. Most amazing because it's going to happen to you. That's what's really amazing about it. and You almost can't quite get it, but there you are in this extraordinary moment that is so silent and if it's, as it often is when I've been sitting with people, uh, at least a somewhat conscious death, it's so sacred, it's so extraordinary, and in the moment there's spirit in the body, and in the moment there's not. And there comes a really deep trust of that, so that in the prayers that we would do at the end of life for someone, the prayers go on for a while after, you're, after you die to that which can still um, listen. Anyway, that's a, a long answer, meandering answer to your question, um, for better or for worse. Don't believe anything I said. <laughs> and I mean it, you know. Now is the time for you to listen and see what is sacred and what is true for yourself. You don't want to? Take the last little piece of the okay. You could. Thank you. Thank you. He said that he didn't want to let go of that. That was moving for him and important, and he didn't want to let go of it quite yet. Please. Thank you. And we can be put in such difficult situations from modern technology. I mean, before, no one had to make that kind of choice, or almost never. But now, it's commonly placed in our hands. And then, with all the new technologies of um, stem cell research and cloning coming up, you know it is, and all that, the kind of moral dilemmas and questions of what we do, um, the bioethical questions, if you will, are are going to be really part of our culture and require on on our part um, a real attention to our hearts and to what's sacred. Yes, please. What happens when you die? Well, yeah. (laughs) There's a famous, there's a, go ahead. I guess more succinctly, like, after this slide, so your teacher, Chao, is talking about kind of affirming you that, you know, don't worry about all that, but then it was like, it does happen, right? You go somewhere else, so I don't know, what is that? Well, yeah, there's the question. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the person who asked the Zen master, you're a Zen master, right? He said, yes. <clears throat> what happens when you die? And the Zen master said, I don't know. I haven't, I'm not a dead, dead master yet, I can tell you. <clears throat> I'm sorry that I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to give you a different kind of answer. Yes, I might be willing to talk about those experiences in a different context. Um, I I will say this much, because I've sat with people in such deep spaces in meditation and in myself, that um, I've had many, many experiences with people remembering past lives that are really connected to the way their life is now. Not, you know, Queen Cleopatra or something, but, you know, being a peasant somewhere, whatever, um, that made incredible connections to what was happening now. And also in exploring the space between lives, when people are in the deepest place in meditation. Very, very interesting territory to explore. Um, I'm not going to say more about that now. Instead, I want to talk about a man who went to visit the Buddha and, like that Zen master I just talked about, came up and bowed and paid his respects and said, I hear you are a Buddha, an awakened one. And the Buddha said, yes. And he said, good, I have some questions for you. And the Buddha said, yes. And he said, I want to know what happens when you die your your question, basically. And the Buddha said, for what purpose? And the man said, because then I will know how to live my life if I know what's in store for me. And then the Buddha looked back, as he often did, and responded with qu- a question. He said, suppose that you have many lives, as is taught and believed in India and um, so much many parts of the world, if it's true that when you die, your spirit carries on in some fashion in another incarnation, how would you want to live? And the man paused, and after all, he's answering the Buddha, and he reflected and he said, well, I would want to be generous, because it feels good to be generous, and also it would sow the seeds for generosity and prosperity in future lives. I'd want to be um, attentive and mindful, not only because it would let me do things well, but also it would bring this, plant the seeds for wisdom to arise in future lives. Um, I'd want to be compassionate and care for people. It feels very good to do it. And also it would sow the karmic seeds for Myself to be loved and cared for as well in future lives and he went on like that for a while and the Buddha said just so my friend now he said suppose That there's only one life That this is it. This is the show and then it's done How would you want to live if you knew there was only one life? And the man sat for a moment and he said well, I'd want to be very generous because it feels so good to do it. People love you, it feels good to you, and you can't take it with you, so you might as well give it away. And I'd want to be really mindful and attentive because if this is the only time I'm here, I don't want to miss anything. I want to see every sunrise and, you know, be part of every day as fully as I can. Oh, and I'd want to be really compassionate because if we're just here for a short while, I want to be able to tend um, with love to those around me, the community, the world. This is the way I would like to live. And so he answered basically the exact same answer. And the Buddha said, just so, my friend. And that was the end of their conversation. (laughs) There you are, (laughs) stuck. It is so mysterious, you know, we get going around our, our days and all the busyness we have and you have your little schedule and things, your to-do list, you know, that list inwardly or outwardly and stuff. And we really forget the mystery of coming into incarnation, of being in this body in, in uh, Africa, um, one of the beautiful traditions is that as a child is getting ready to be born, not only do they listen for the song of that child, the mother does, and the people in the village, but the, the elders in the village try to listen, in addition to the song, to know what is that child's purpose or gift, that each person who comes to the world will make a contribution, will have a particular task, And they really try to listen for what brings that person into an incarnation. And the same is true in the Buddhist countries as well. I mean, here it's like, you know, held upside down, whacked on the butt, a little kind of blue or pink, whatever, thing put on your wrist and sent off into the, you know, the nursery and the hospital or whatever it is. But people don't generally get met with that kind of, attention, not just to their physical birth, but really to the birth of a being, of a spirit, of an individual coming into incarnation. And so here you are, you're in the middle of your incarnation in some way or other. What is your gift? What is your task? What what really matters to you? Before you complete this, there is something you know, that you might reflect about this great mystery because we're here for such a short time. Someone have their hand up over here with it. Yeah. Could you speak to freedom, What makes you ask about freedom? This is our last question for tonight. What makes you ask about freedom? Just uh, because it is, uh, the word is spoken to so many reflections and so many ways, I, I just wanted to hear what you might come forth with. Uh, and not so much explaining the word, but to. That's what you mean full meaning to the word. Maybe in the Buddhist tradition, what might be said for that word? It's really cherished in the Buddhist tradition because it's so central to the teachings of awakening um, and one simple expression of freedom is that it is possible to be free no matter what circumstances, that it's possible for the heart to be free so that, let me try and remember his name, Uh, the fellow who wrote wrote the book on logotherapy. Uh, Hmm? Yes. Or he said, we who lived in the concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts, comforting others and giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they testify to the last and greatest of all human freedoms, the freedom to choose your spirit no matter what the circumstances. And I've had the privilege of meeting certain lamas in the Himalayas who come out of Tibet who were imprisoned and tortured by the communist Chinese army and so forth, as everybody knows, it happened to Tibet. And meeting some of these teachers who were among the happiest, most, open-hearted, beautiful beings, you'd say, well, my God, they were traumatized, you know. And in one meeting where we were together with the Dalai Lama and a number of people, I think it was the Dalai Lama asked this old Lama who had been in prison for 20-some years and tortured, were you ever afraid? And he says, yes, I was afraid. That was interesting. What were you afraid of? So I was afraid that I would lose my compassion for my captors, for those who were torturing me. That was the big fear that I had, that I wouldn't be able to keep up, all me whom my prayer of compassion, to include everybody, especially those who were the soldiers that were keeping us in prison and torturing us, because they were the ones that were making the most terrible karma And I knew that terrible things were happening to them now and would so in the future. And I felt so much for their suffering. So you ask about freedom, and there are so many wonderful expressions of it around the world. Um, Freedom is not freedom from something to be some other place, but it is the inalienable freedom of your own true nature. No matter what happens, there is a freedom of heart and spirit. O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones. This is the purpose of the teachings of the Dharma. This is what's possible for you to remember. Um, And it's a beautiful thing. Um, Meditation practice, in the simplest way, is a vehicle to return to that deep understanding of freedom. And with it comes tremendous compassion for all those that are suffering because they don't remember human freedom. So let's just sit for a moment.